everyone and welcome back to Feminist Futures. Hope you're all doing well. You might have noticed that we didn't have a podcast episode out this week and that's because I've decided to go bi-weekly with releasing episodes. This is because I've started a new job recently and I found out that trying to do a full-time job and also do a podcast and do it to the best of my ability wasn't going best. So I've decided to go bi-weekly but I hope you'll stick with me and it just means more in-depth episodes and more exciting guests. This week we're talking Scottish independence. We know that if the SNP get a majority in the Scottish election come May, that Sturgeon will be looking for another referendum on whether in Scotland should go independent come autumn. With Covid that might get pushed back to next year but definitely in the next year at least. And I just wanted to say that from a personal perspective, I am someone who's gone from a soft no to a hard yes. And that's for a couple of reasons. I think one of them, which we talk about in the podcast episode, is just the events that have happened over the past four to five years. With Brexit, with Covid, we've seen time and time again, Scottish interests and Scottish voices be sidelined in favour of this neoliberal, macho approach that's happening in Westminster. And I think secondly, I'm kind of at that point where I'm thinking, what's to lose? We're at a point where we're going to be building back again following COVID. And if there are any lessons to be learned of this really difficult time, it's that we need to be valuing different things in society. And I think that's a really great mindset to go into kind of planning a new nation and thinking about what a new society would want to start from. For this week's podcast, I'm joined by Kirsten Rimmery. Kirsten is Professor of Social Policy and Co-Director of the Centre on Gender and Feminist Studies at the University of Stirling. Kirsten is a wealth of knowledge and her analysis about Scottish independence is incredible. During the 2014 referendum, or just before it, Kirsten was commissioned to do some research into what an independent Scotland's kind of social policy would look like and what it would look like with more devolved power. And as she says in the episode, the exercise of doing this made her turn from a soft no into a hard yes, a bit like me. One of the things that stuck with me from my chat with Kirsten was how important person-to-person conversations had been prior to the 2014 referendum. She mentions that for many people this changed their mind on different topics, whether it was talking to family, friends, co-workers, you know, it really created a connection that people were able to overcome boundaries and biases that they hadn't had before. And with that in mind, I just wanted to give a little special shout out to Gordon and Fiona. They were two friends of mine at university who I have really distinct memories of us sitting around a table after probably drinking or at the pub and talking through and challenging each other on what the future of Scotland would look like. We didn't always agree. We didn't always have all the facts looking back now and we didn't always have the right answers, but we were having those conversations And that's something that I really hope we can take forward into the next referendum and also into building Scotland. We want to challenge each other other to make it the best possible outcome that it can be. As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can reach out to me on Twitter 
at Podcast Futures, on Instagram at Feminist Futures Podcast, or by email at Feminist Futures Podcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. But yeah, thank you again for joining me. As you can tell, I'm I'm from Scotland originally, so I was really keen to to try and get a podcast on this on this topic. I'm originally from from Fife, um, but I've, I now live in London, and I um, so I've lost a little bit of my Fife accent. But it might come back out <laughs> during this, or um, as my boyfriend says, whenever I go over the border. So we'll see see how it goes. But yeah, I mean, you know, I was just reading the news, and and we're seeing Nicola Sturgeon saying that if the SNP get a mandate come May in the Scottish parliamentary elections, that that will give them, uh, sorry, that will give them a mandate going forward for another independence referendum. And time and time again, we're seeing the polls showing, you know, that a majority of people are are looking towards it and quite a high percentage. But one of the things that really fascinated me was this, the flip from, from women majority voting no yeah. to now kind of being more in the camp of, of the yes, the yes campaign. I wonder if you could start off by just giving us an idea of why that gender gap is closing and and what's changed now compared to compared to 2014. Okay, well, let's think, look at this in the light of what we know from the research evidence about how women vote, why women vote. We know that men tend to make up uh, vote along party lines much more often than women do, and they also will stick to the same voting pattern throughout their life much more than women do. Women are the swing voters. Women are generally the ones who are open to persuasion and more likely to change political parties and also more likely to change their views on things, uh, which is why they they get targeted a lot um, in certain kinds of elections. Um, The referendum, of course, was different because it wasn't necessarily along party lines, although in 2014 it was very clearly fought by political parties. But we do know that women were not risk averse, because that's mis- misrepresenting the, the, the data, really. But they were very cautious about risk. Um, and they were much more likely to do research about the various things that uh, worried them. Uh, so, for example, if they were worried about uh, topics that came up like the NHS or membership of the EU or currency, not so much currency, because that was a bit of a red herring. Nobody really cared that much about Yes, It was more sort of, you know, well, what would independence mean? And what would it mean for me and my family? And I think in 2014, there were a lot of unknowns. So that what was being offered was much less clear than a lot of people wanted. Um, and we do know there was a big swing towards independence from a, you know, a, a sort of historically around 17 to 20 percent being in favour of independence to the historic swing, you know, 45 on the night. But we also know, as you said, that women were much less likely to vote. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there were lots of reasons for that. Uh, caution, worried about the economy, worried about particularly older women, worried about pensions, worried about the NHS worried about the uncertainty over what would happen to those. Um, And we do know from uh, work that's been done on the Central Constitutional Change around the University of Edinburgh, which I'm um, affiliated to, there were a lot of soft no's in the women's camp there. There were women who were like, well, I could be persuaded, but at the end of the day, weren't persuaded and went for uh, lots of things like the the membership of the EU, particularly 
important, particularly for working age women. Mm-hmm. Um, older women, as I said, concerned about the NHS, concerned about pensions. And there was also who was in charge. It was it was perceived by a lot of women as being a kind of very shouty male dominated debate on both sides. The, the, the better together side was very dominated by male voices, but also the campaign for yes was very dominated by male voices. And there was a minority who were put off by the nature of the debate, the male nature of it, also uh, put off by the kind of, you know, Alex Salmon being quite a charismatic figure, but that's quite divisive. So in some respects, he did win a lot of votes, Mm -hmm. but he did put off, not a lot, but, um, you know, some people did enough to make it significant of the no's, did mention, I don't want Alex Salmon to be the first minister for the rest time. I find that really fascinating because I think when I just anecdotally when I think back about where I was voting you know I was actually one of those people who was no up until the very last moment like I changed my mind when I went into the polling booth I stood for 10-15 minutes and decided to vote yes at the last moment and sort of came out still not sure you know whether I had made the right decision or not and spent the night with friends talking about the same kind of thing where some people had gone in and voted no or voted yes and it was a lot of us felt very torn about what to, what to go for whereas this time around just on a personal opinion you know I am openly kind of supporting independence and um, but still very cautious of some of those issues that you're bringing up you were wanting to still know about how it's going to impact the NHS how is it going to impact pensions and that kind of thing I want to talk about the representation thing because I think that has shifted I think there definitely has been a real move and I wonder if it's if it's simply that we have Nicola Sturgeon now as the kind of head of it, or if you think that there's been much more of a grassroots movement to include women in the conversation about independence. I wanted your wanted your thoughts on that. Well, it's a mix of both. I mean, one of the things, of course, is that we don't have that divisive, charismatic male figure leading it now. It's a very different personality at the top. Uh, one of the first things Sturgeon did when she came into power was to create a 50-50 cabinet. Mm-hmm. And that really changed the tone of politics in general, uh, also changed expectations of the SNP. There was a lot more of it. Okay, well, it's it's actually okay now to talk about feminist issues, to talk about childcare, to talk about things you know, that might have been seen to be soft politics. Grassroots organisations, interestingly, never went away. So uh, Women for Independence uh, was one of the big major women's grassroots organisations, and its membership did drop off after the 2014, because um, it was like, oh, well, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> and grassroots like the, the, the different, yes, regional movements, but also particularly the different uh, local Women for Independence groups were doing politics very, very differently. And like you've just described, mm-hmm. everywhere in Scotland, we're having those conversations in the run up and immediately after the referendum in pubs, in people's back rooms, in at work yeah. in, in everywhere it was suddenly everybody was politically engaged and partly because they both counted mm-hmm. but partly because it was a real big question it wasn't just who's going to be in power for the next four years it was really about what do we want the future of Scotland to look like and um, so there were a lot of grassroots campaigns that took away the male pale shouty only on television only mm-hmm. high high ranking politicians talking about this and tapped into this um, and carried on with conversations so women for independence groups were looking at local things around like women's prisons period poverty Mm. all sorts of issues that have come up that women might not have 
sort of identified with before, but there is now quite a strong women's movement. And it's not a 1970s campus, you know, feminist, uh, you know, women and lesbians in dungarees type movement. It is very much a grassroots women saying, actually, there are issues that that I'm worried about that didn't come up. Um, And people were talking about the economy, and they were talking about defence, but where were they talking about childcare? Where were they talking about the crisis in social care? Where were they talking about the NHS? Mm -hmm. Where were they talking about what's going to happen to our pensions? And all of those conversations carried on at a grassroots, while at the same time, you've got big things happening and Nicola Sturgeon in in charge. And she's very much a leader in the kind of mould of Jacinta Ardern and people like Angela Merkel, although politically they're all very different, but that kind of compassionate Mm. leadership. It's a very much more engagement. And then two things happened, which I think has really skewed it. First one, obviously, was Brexit. And when you look at the polls, when you look at how women's opinions changed, it wasn't immediately upon Brexit. Because I think like most of us, women were waiting to see what happened. Yeah. So the majority of Scotland didn't want Brexit. But like, I mean, I, I woke up on the morning of the Brexit vote and went, oh, no, that's gone badly. Yeah. Um, but I'll wait and see. But then uh, as things progressed, as Scotland and Scottish interests were excluded more and more, mm-hmm. as it seemed to be that we were moving towards a hard, so-called hard Brexit or even a no-deal Brexit, which was not you know, what anybody wanted, and particularly not the way the Scottish people who were politically engaged, including women, kind of envisaged Scotland as a nation. Um, so that happened and Nicola Sturgeon always you know steered a very politically astute ship through that Mm -hmm. and then of course Covid happened yes exactly um and her I think again the quality of her leadership has been incredible you know people all the opinion polls show that people trust her no matter what their political background no matter what their views on independence no matter what their political party affiliation they trust her in the way that people in England don't trust the Prime Minister. Exactly. And, I mean, the public health messages are largely the same. They're dealing with the same yeah. data. They're making the same, roughly the same recommendations. But people in Scotland are following the advice more. And it's all that we know about public health mid, uh, messages and trust in time of a crisis. Definitely. So I think what looked like the risky option, independence, now looks like the less risky option. Mm. I think the kind of messages that have come out about uh, it's not just an SNP project anymore. Yes, completely. made a huge difference to women. Because, of course, you know, if you don't like the SNP as a political party, which there's no reason why you should, even though it's very popular, why would you vote for independence? But there's a lot more grassroots movements that have captured women's voices by doing politics differently. I think it's been, you know, a combination. There's a very long-winded way of saying it's grass no, and it's the leadership that have made absolutely. a big difference, I think, to the way women perceive the question. I think also it, it's just that stark juxtaposition, as you were saying, between Nicola Sturgeon, who even, as you said, when you look at the kind of public health messages, they've been roughly the same. Actually, some of the death rates were the same, similar, same time, particularly in care homes, that kind of thing. Yeah. And yet you had this completely different attitude towards her. And I think it's because she has built this more empathetic and relatable and trust trusting kind of relationship with people mm-hmm. i remember she she came out and and did this really great piece about having a miscarriage in a, in, a, in a newspaper article and i thought gosh you never have that from any of the kind of male 
leaders in Westminster being so candid and so kind of open in that way mm. and it creates that trust I wanted to talk about the kind of future because we talked a little bit about I think this time around I'm definitely having more conversations with friends and with family about what we see a future of Scotland looking like rather than just in the moment of um, what kind of currency we're going to have what are the negotiations yeah. going to look like you know defense and, and trade and as you said this kind of more soft if you split up politics with hard and soft topics I'm wondering if you could kind of talk through and you can talk from a personal perspective or, or what you've seen kind of research wise about what people want to see from the future of Scotland and particularly from women in, in general. Have you got any any research that shows what they're striving for when they're saying yes to an independent Scotland? Um, I can do both. And I think, you know, you, you told the story of how you were unsure um, and now you're quite know yes I think this would be a good idea but still unsure about the thing and I think that's the same position as a lot of women are in mm-hmm. and at the time of the 2014 referendum I was uh, an independent academic and I was commissioned to do research and I was particularly looking at gender equality so what would the outcomes be if Scotland voted yes what could it do differently to achieve gender equality and what could it do if it voted no kind of thing um, and I focused particularly on long-term care what we would call social care And the things that stood out to me was I was looking at countries that have got better gender equality outcomes than the UK generally, and then Scotland in particular, Um, and what Scotland could do with its devolved powers already, what additional powers it might need, does it really need independence kind of thing, those kind Mm -hmm. of things. What stood out to me was that um, alongside the, the obvious contenders like the Nordic countries, there were lots of countries like France, Germany, and the Netherlands, which also have better gender equality outcomes, but look more like the UK. They don't mm. have this massive welfare state, left-wing, social democratic system. Um, and so conceivably, even if Scotland went independent but stayed neoliberal kind of thing, because I don't think an independent referendum would magically transform us into a feminist utopia, or a socialist utopia or yeah. any kind of other utopia that, that, that everybody's campaigning for yeah. in terms of that, that future. But importantly, those countries all had the levers to do things uh, in lots of complex situations. So if we take, for example, childcare, childcare policy, if it's actually going to lead to gender equality, needs to line up. You need to have leave policies as well as you need to have affordable childcare. It needs to be universal, but you also need to have a good maternity leave. You need to have good protection in the workplace. You need to have flexible working. We definitely need to encourage more men into caring and the the sharing of the burden and all of those kinds of things. And so you need to have the trade unions involved. You need to have lots of different things involved. Similarly with long-term care. And again, this is an area that really does impact on women because in the lack of social care, we know that the majority of carers, particularly of older people, Mm -hmm. and the majority of carers who are doing that really hard, hands-on caring are women. Um, And uh, again, a lot of these women are the women who've changed their minds, you know, that sort of 40, 50, 60 age group rather than younger women who have, you know, actively changed their mind about independence. And I think it is also partly because COVID has exposed the absolute failures in the social care system um, and really exposed how much we're over depending on uh, informal care, family care, etc., Now, all of these countries that had better outcomes didn't do that. They didn't rely on the family to provide care. And they Mm. also, importantly, had gender equality in their constitutions as one of the aims. Got you. 
And, um, you know, to have something in its constitution, try banning guns in America. If you you doubt the the power of a constitution, trying people's thinking. So having gender equality in a written constitution is a tremendously powerful lever. It's not sufficient. Uh, As I said, it wouldn't create a feminist utopia, but it gives you a lot of important levers for change. And it was at that point I went from, oh, it's kind of interesting to a, actually, I think this would be a good idea. But obviously I was an academic, so I couldn't say, oh, I think this is a good idea. (laughs) I just presented the evidence um, alongside the evidence that obviously wouldn't be a feminist utopia and it wouldn't um, be sufficient on its own. So I think that example sort of shows that despite, so for example, if you take social care, you know, social care and health are devolved in Scotland. But having to have all those other parts that maybe fall into, as you said, like working policies or spending or that kind of thing, because Scotland doesn't have control over that, it's not able to actually effectively make those changes to have good, affordable childcare. And as you said, because it's not on their own terms or it's not in their constitution. Mm. That's that's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about that because in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's devolved. So it means that they're fully in charge, but it links so much more into into yeah. the other powers that are within Westminster. Exactly. And also in terms of disability as well, course, uh, yes, we've got devolved benefits, devolved disability benefits and social care is devolved. But working benefits are not devolved. Uh, not in the same way. And even when they have been devolved around universal credit, there's a limit to what Scotland can do and change. Yes. And we do know that things like universal basic income would make a huge, huge difference, both to women's lives and disabled people's lives. We've piloted it at lots of places all over the world, and we've piloted it in Scotland. And there are really positive messages coming out. But it would be incredibly difficult to roll out over the whole of Scotland without independence because it would mean substantial not just political change but structural change you know change to the way the department of work and pensions works change to the way benefits work change to the way all sorts of you know disability living allowance personal independence payments all of that needs to join up Um, and similarly in childcare, all of those things need to join up and yes I mean, Scotland has been criticised by me as much as anyone else for not being radical enough with the powers it has. Yeah. You know, we've had devolution since 1999. You know, we've narrowed the poverty gap, but we haven't solved it. Uh, we've narrowed the inequality gap, particularly between men and women, but we haven't solved it. We have more equal pay. Uh, we've done very dramatically good things in terms of violence against women and girls. So psychological abuse and with the powers that we've got, but we've still got very high rates of violence against women and girls in our society. We're still a very sexist society. And even despite Nicola Sturgeon's 50-50 cabinet, only a third of MSPs are women. Um, And when you look at local authorities in kind of local government, it's even lower. It's, you know, 20% or less are women. But the other thing is, of course, that there's never been a, a seismic shift where Scotland has said, we are a feminist country. Yes, There's never been that external, and even in 2014, there was the bombs, not uh, bans, not bombs. Yes. And interestingly enough, which is lovely, this is why I love being an academic in times of great turmoil and change. (laughs) Um, One of the most exciting times to be an academic in social policy or political science. 
uh, because you were literally seeing an experiment rolling out around you. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, hopefully if we do get a second independence referendum, it would be even more exciting. Yeah. Um, but one of the things, I had a PhD student who was working with the Scottish government around, she was concentrating on economic measures, how you get mm. gender equality mainstreamed in, in yeah. economic planning. And it's, a, it's quite a difficult thing to do. But also it meant that she was working with civil servants and with the Scottish government round about the time of the referendum. So she got a lot of inside information on strategy. And when the, you know, bans, not bombs kinds of thing, you know, where we'll take money from Trident and invest it in childcare, that was not the feminist victory that it looked like. Mm. Over, and I absolutely understand it, but it was like, oh, well, we need to win over this demographic. Yeah. We need to win, win over younger women with uh, who are working with children. These are a key swing demographic. If we offer them childcare, they may well vote for us, you know, kind of thing. Um, and all of the white paper was like an SMP white paper. Yeah. And I think looking forward, A, if we're going to keep that swing of women's votes towards independence and, and actually get them out on the day to vote for independence, because there's a big difference between what you say in polls and then what you actually do, that's got to be much more concrete that vision of a gender equal, or at least a country that's moving and working towards gender equality, I think has got to be much more overt than it was last time. It it can't just be a cynical, oh, we need this group of voters. Exactly. Do you think that, do you think that Sturgeon knows that this time? Do you think there's definitely much more of a a pull or a push to be more substantive in those claims? I think so. I think one of the, uh, I mean, so one of the things that happened after 2014 was a lot of grassroots members became mainstream politicians. So Jean Freeman is a very good example of a woman who helped found Women for Independence and is currently the, the cabinet secretary for that's so gonna step down, but obviously is still gonna be an important part of exactly. the independence mm-hmm. movement. Those voices, those very strong feminist voices, and I think it's not just the women, but also the men who see that we need to persuade women. Yes, exactly. Um, um, and also, interestingly, COVID has exposed a lot of the hidden work that women do. Mm-hmm. So men who are stuck at home with young children suddenly realise how hard it is to look yeah. after young children and that kind of thing. So that's changed as well. That 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 gender blindness to the hidden work that goes on has changed. So things that might have been you know previously women's issues are now much more. Family issues, both family issues, yeah. Parent issues, as opposed to working mothers. So yes, the leadership knows. I think there's a strong feminist movement within the SNP, within the Green Party, and also the arguments against independence that very much were about it's too risky are much less persuasive to women now. Yes, um, and so. As you know, the, the grassroots hasn't gone away. And I think it would be part of the negotiating. And we all know that if you've got, if you want to build something, it really depends who the stakeholders are around at the beginning as to what that thing looks like. Exactly. And I think this time round, and one of the things that we say in Women in, for Independence, that I heard said in Women for Independence was it'd be much better to win independence under um, Sturgeon than it would have been under Salmond because that wouldn't have been a feminist project at all. Exactly. Whereas now it will be an overtly feminist project. It will be other things as well. I think it'll be a much greener project uh, 
now and the focus will be on sustainable energy much more than it was last time and that's partly economic as well as you know the climate crisis we can see what happens when when in brexit when negotiations go terribly badly in theory if we lose all the oil which we wouldn't but in theory if we lose all the oil what we're going to do well we need to focus on renewables yes we always need to do that anyway but of course we're we're a country absolutely rich with yeah. renewables and the potential for renewable energy. And we're also an over-educated country. So we've got, you know, 19 universities for a population less than Cairo. We've got a highly skilled workforce. And, and pulling away from that a neoliberal model of economics that is very Westminster dominated, but we also know it doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work for a lot of people. COVID has really exposed that. So the opportunity to rebuild after COVID and the opportunity to build an independent nation after COVID. I know it's that people say things like, oh, well, this is not the right time to have a referendum. Yeah. But the contrary argument to that is this is exactly the right time. Exactly. To start thinking about the future of Scotland, because what has become very clear is that we can't go on the way we do. We have. Yeah. I just wanted to quickly um, kind of talk about, I know that you said that this is the time we should be kind of re- rebuilding and going for an independent Scotland. Just wanted to like see if you had any worries about you know we've seen COVID has exposed that women are often more in precarious work or you know have been impacted more economically I had you probably know the stats better than I do but I've read kind of few articles around that showing that Mm -hmm. women are being being impacted in this way by COVID and lockdowns do you feel are you concerned or any worries that if we also go for an independent Scotland in the next year two years whenever that would be that that would sort of um would that impact women in the short term or do you think it's a, it's a worth a worth it risk to take for yeah, the longer term to be better the timing is like one of these things that we all wish we had a crystal ball yeah exactly because, yes there is a strong part of me that who who knows from the research who knows also from the experience I mean the, if you look at my sector higher education sector so men's con- men's submissions to uh, and journal articles has gone through the roof. I saw this, yeah. And women's has tanked in political science and in social science and in uh, STEM subjects. And it doesn't take a genius to work out why. It's because women are at home, homeschooling, uh, doing the caring, doing the, you know, going and looking after elderly parents, etc. when social care isn't there. So, you know, we need to be really, really careful that we don't come out of this with a broken society that is overly dependent on the unpaid work of women and we just carry that forward. But we were talking about the timing and you know what would happen now? Would women have the time, the resources, the energy to A, inform themselves, which they need to? Yeah. Uh, those of us who are campaigning on both sides, do we have the time, the energy to provide the information, uh, certainly we can't all gather in church halls and, and have a yeah. natter about it. Yeah. So a lot of it's going to be happening online and that's going to exclude people who are internet poor, people who are time poor, people who are sitting in front of Zoom meetings all day and go, I have not got the capacity now to go and sit in a chat with people about independence. Yeah. So, yeah, there is a slight concern on my part that... We need to, you know, all the evidence indicates that if we are going to persuade people in favour of independence, that we need to provide them with really good information. Yes. We know that women more than men, but men as well, uh, make 
decisions based on the quality of the information, how much they trust it. Um, exactly. so it needs to come and not be a political message. It needs to be. And all of the stuff, I mean, it was amazing um, when I was listening last time around to you know, the stuff that was coming out on the NHS and pensions that was just blatant lies. Mm, and I yeah. knew as a social policy academic, they were blatant lies, but people got their information from, you know, and they trusted mainstream media. So when the Labour Party came out and said, you know, you're going to lose your pension. Of course. Yeah. Lots of older people went, I don't want to lose my pension, quite rightly. Yeah, exactly. All the information, all the, all the EU membership. Prime example. (laughs) Oh, the irony. Um, You know, people were dreadfully scared that we would get chucked out of the EU if we went independent. Of course, we'd be in the EU now and and not have done Brexit. Exactly. I wanted to ask you, are you more concerned about misinformation or disinformation? On the independent, on the grassroots side, um, the the pro-independence campaigners are much more aware of how much misinformation or disinformation will be around and the scare tactics and much more prepared for that. I don't think they were as prepared as they could have been Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, that when people in church halls and on the radio and on the television said, well, you won't have an NHS, there should have been a really quick rejoinder to that, a really quick evidence-based rejoinder, and there wasn't. And now we can do that kind of thing. It's more that I'm worried that they won't hear the information. Yes, yes. There won't be access to it because why would you why would you log on to something on the internet that's about independence unless you already were for it in which case you don't need to be persuaded and I think when you look at the things that women care about which I hope is still the same things you know they care about the economy they care about childcare, they care about social care they care about the NHS they care about pensions they really care about the public sector most people working in the public sector are women Mm-hmm. as well as most people using public sector services of women yeah they care about their families they care about the future and education for their children they care about what's going to happen to their parents as they get old they care about what's going to happen to them exactly exactly and those kind of things and those kinds of things so there needs to be a really clear plan that says look this is what an independent scotland can do yes um this is how things could be better they won't be better unless you vote for independence promise that it's possible and I would hope that academics like me would play a role in that in providing the unbiased uh, evidence for that evidence yeah I wanted to just quickly um touch on something because one thing that I'm really curious about is you talked a little bit about you know the fact that the uh, universal credit and the systems that kind of live within Westminster and I also think about like the immigration system that we have I would say they're inhumane you know it's Mm -hmm. kind of set them set them out at home particularly immigration I just wondered from your opinion if you're seeing mutterings from the SNP and kind of the Scottish government and other other parties about how a future of Scotland would look in terms of kind of those topics for immigration or benefits because I think those are in the short term the ones that might so I think in the short term those are the type of type of um issues that can easily just default into what has come before rather than reimagining it to be yeah. something different is there discussions about that what what do you think the, the views are I think um it was interesting in the the discussions around the Smith commission immediately afterwards yeah. which is about what kinds of powers should be devolved and I was involved directly in that and everybody thought everything should be devolved uh, including immigration barring foreign policy right. that didn't happen yeah 
But one of the arguments around immigration was, of course, that A, we should be much more open to immigration. We've got an ageing population much more so than the rest of the UK. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need immigration in terms of being able to pay for pensions. And the other thing, of course, was that there's always been a much more open pro-EU kind of, you know, wanting that sort of movement, free movement uh, of people. And certainly, you know, in my sector, free movement of people means free movement of ideas. Mm-hmm. And so that I think Scotland generally is more pro-immigration than the rest of the UK. So being able to say, you know, sell independence on it would make immigration easier, fairer, etc., uh, would also work. But one thing that has been incredibly useful, and it's a sort of a light that gets hidden under the bushel, is that so in looking at the de- devolution of benefits and right. the social security system. The way in which the Scottish government has gone about it has been a much more what we would call cooperative policy making. Right. So it has user panels that are yep. advising it, people who gen- who have lived with the benefit system. Yep. And so lots of co- principles have come out about, you know, fairness, accountability and, uh, you know, equality, but also a sense of, you know, welfare benefits being a right and dignity and a shared universal approach to them. Exactly. And Scotland has always preferred universalism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in terms of education, in terms of health, and in terms of things like that, over targeted benefits. And people aren't necessarily aware of the strength of that kind of policy making, yeah. um, unless they're directly involved in it. Mm-hmm. But that is a demonstration, and again, and it was something that persuaded me, which was that if you the structure of the politics in Scotland, mm-hmm. the fact that we have a new modern parliament, not a parliament based on the rules of 1500, where you shout at each other. Physically, it's set up. Houses of Westminster, you shout at each other. There's meant to be one party in power, one party in opposition, and you shout at each other. The Scottish parliament, like most modern parliaments, is like a semicircle. Yeah. And it's meant, uh, even though the SNP... Uh, is going to probably get a majority again in May. The structure of the voting system is meant to prevent that. Yes. It is meant to have a large amount of proportional representation, which means that everybody's vote does count. Yeah. And it's very, very hard for one party to gain a majority because it's meant to be cooperative, consensual policy making. And we see this in all sorts of new democracies, particularly in the post-Soviet Union ones, you get better policy outcomes that way. Yeah. Because you don't, instead of having ideological positions or, you know, this is what we believe, so we'll do it. You actually have to get policy solutions that work. Exactly. And you have to get policy solutions that are a solution to the problem. And of course, the future, because we have that as the basis of our parliament now, mm-hmm. the future of a parliament after independence would probably look very like that, very yeah. like that cooperative decision making it would also be a chance to get rid of things like the house of lords that clearly owes an an anachronism you don't necessarily have to have a second chamber but i think scotland would want a second chamber and then you could have real argument you know real proper discussions about should it be a citizens assembly should it be by jury should it be by election you have those discussions yeah much like you were describing you know we all have those discussions around coffee tables around this that and the other and there are very good precedents for cooperative policy making around that the structures are there the scottish government always always talks to and consults it doesn't always do what the third sector tells it to do yeah 
And in some respects, it does raise expectations. And I know some of the third sector in Scotland is a bit cross because uh, they've said things that haven't happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they perhaps don't realise how unusual it is to even be asked. So. <laughs> it's a better step in the right direction, isn't it, it than, is. than not being in the room at all. Do you think that the voting system would stay the same? There would have to be some changes to uh, the way in which the, not the voting system per se, but the whole way in which the constitution works yeah yeah so you know it'd be a new constitution a new and it would need new institutions yeah so we've been talking about a second chamber there would have to be decisions made about that i think for uh economic and social policy state stability mm-hmm. you would keep the institutions that you've got right for yeah. at least a, you know a transitional period there is a mix of first past the vote and first past the post yes and proportional representation for the scottish parliament which in 1999 or 97, when they were designing it, was the cutting edge of what yeah. was there at that point. Interestingly, though, from going back to what we were talking about, women's public representation, mm-hmm. you get much more women coming through yeah. in proportional representation systems. And other minorities, I think, as well, right? And, yeah. and a wider range of people's experiences. Mm-hmm. So you get much more poorer working class people, you get much more uh, people of colour, um, and also, you know, disabled people and people with a wider range of experience, but also yeah. because you've got a wider range of political parties. Yes, as well. This is why I brought it up because I think, in some ways, the fact that we have more of a proportional representation, uh, report more proportionally representative system in Scotland, and that means we have the Greens and you know other parties, parties like that, mm. means that we we've now got a coalition or nearly started to get a coalition of people who are for independence that isn't just the SNP, yeah. and I think for friends of mine who maybe are not so in love with the SNP, you know, for whatever reason, are still in favour of independence because they see it separated from the SNP's project because they see that there are options and there are a future where they might not be the dominant party because that's that's a possibility. Whereas in the UK, okay, yeah, we might eventually get a, a Labour government in, in Westminster, but that's a very big risk and it's always just one party of the other and for me that's something that I would really look forward to in an independent Scotland because just quickly I lived in the Netherlands before this and mm-hmm. lived in Amsterdam and was just kind of blown away at their their system they have you know p- proportional representation and if you don't like one party which happens which happened sort of in the last election where the Labour Party lost a lot of votes because they messed up they were in the coalition and they messed up kind of like Lib Dems and so lots of voters went okay I'm going to go to the Green Party or the other centrist party or that mm-hmm. kind of thing and I was like wow like in the UK just you're like stuck with them or you tactically vote and and or you waste a vote you know in in kind of quotations so that that really fascinates me and kind of the option of having that going forward and seeing real change in what politics is yeah you know and a lot of I remember doing um, a lot of panels around 2014 where I would be the academic and there would be usually somebody from the Labour Party uh, Mm -hmm. better together and usually somebody from the SNP yeah and the Labour Party's argument which I still don't buy, but anyway, uh, was that, uh, no, we need social justice for the whole of the UK. And it's, it's if we leave, then we're leaving people living in poverty in the rest of the UK, and that's not fair. But the thing is, A, if, we, if Scotland did go independent, it would necessitate constitutional change in the yeah. rest of the UK, yeah. because it would not... It would not be stable enough to carry on. 
Mm-hmm. Now, all of the parties have in the in the Westminster government have always consistently voted against a system of proportional representation, apart from the Liberal Democrats, because it is in their interests to do so. Because by definition, they are there having won a first-past-the-post. Exactly, exactly. And you can hear from my voice, probably, that I'm not Scottish at all. Um, I am English. I was brought up in Europe, um, and and I'm one of these itinerant um, army brats who, where are you from, starts panicking. Yeah. (laughs) But I chose to make my home here. Um, I came to work here. Yeah. Um, and I, ca- I came because I was offered a job at the University of Stirling. And, and I had the opposite. Like you, when you, you, you discovered the Netherlands, when I discovered the Scottish politic, political system, both culturally and also politically, and how radically different it yeah. was from mm-hmm. the Westminster political system and culture, which has got good and bad things. <laughs> I of mean, course, the bad yeah. thing is it's much more tribal. Yes. And, you know, historical grievances go deep. So the fact that the Labour Party in Scotland is still anti-independence, even though there are very strong social justice arguments exactly. yeah. for independence, is a classic reason why it's dying on its feet. Yeah. And they keep changing the captain, hoping without changing the direction of the ship. And for those of us who are left-leaning, you know, the demise of the Labour Party is really sad. Of course, yeah, definitely. But as you said, like that, I I now look at Labour, and they're obviously having going to have their leader elections, right, or in, in the next little while. And it would be so fresh to see someone be for independence in that kind of in a left space. Because for me personally, I don't think the SNP go left enough. Like yeah. some of their policies are not for me. So to have another space alongside the Greens would be really strong, and it would be a strong case for a more just and fair Scotland, right, going forward. Absolutely, um, and I'm, I'm a founder member of the Women's Equality Party and I would like to see the Women's Equality, not obviously in, in, in ruling, but I would like to see them have one or two seats in the Scottish Parliament to keep the other parties on their toes. Exactly. You know, to do that, actually we're going to needle you because you're not being, um, you're not being feminist enough. Yeah. And um, you know, the, Scot- the Scottish Labour Party has tried to do that with the SNP, uh, it's tried to say you're not social justice enough but it's really, really difficult to cut through because the only argument at the moment in Scottish politics is around independence. Exactly. If you want a left-wing government and if you want that argument to go away and if you actually want social justice in Scotland, then what you want is an independence referendum to decide the issue and then what I would personally like to see is a left-wing government. Yeah, exactly. It's going to actually topple the SNP yeah. and you know, who are brilliant centrist you know, party in, in that they are pro-business and uh, some social justice stuff. But like you, I'm a lefty and they don't go far enough for yeah, me. Definitely. Um, I would really like to see a strong left-wing government uh, in Scotland. And I, the only way I can see that happening is if we get independence and the SNP lose the main reason why people vote for them. Yeah, exactly. That we kind of, and I think that's what's really, just just quickly, and we can go on to the sort of last section, I don't want to keep you too long, but I, I think that's what also frustrates me about Westminster politics is that people see the Labour and, and Tory party as left and right, 
if that makes sense like they see it as the full movement and you think no they're like a tool or a catalyst that we use to create this change and similarly with you know with the kind of SMP I think at the moment we have to use their position in the way that they have power right now but that doesn't mean they're going to stay in power in five years time or longer down that line and that's important it's important that they don't because we need that change and we need that kind of shift and we need society to mold and shift and change Um, and I think that's what kind of is helpful to see in Scotland is there is a slight separation by that and people do change their minds about who they vote um, and have kind of different differences yeah Yeah, can, can do that all the stuff on voting behaviour in Scotland is very few people vote for the same party for Westminster, Scottish elections and local authority. 100%, it's very yeah. common for them to actually vote for three completely different parties. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the other thing that, uh, and again, this is from the research that we, I've been doing, is that it is dangerous when you get one party in power of whatever persuasion for too long, because you lose not just that shift in policies, et cetera. But you also lose the cooperation with the third sector and civic society. Because if a party has enough seats that it can push forward whatever it wants just by exercising the whip, it doesn't need to consult. It doesn't need to build consensus politically. And therefore, it is less likely to go outside of politics and build consensus with the civic thing. Exactly. And that, for me, is the whole thing that makes Scottish parliamentary democracy and Scottish politics interesting and potentially very progressive is that it should be about building consensus and solving policy problems and you know I did give example you know things like period free period products was a cross-party issue Uh, psychological abuse was a cross-party issue there's been there's been lots of examples of really progressive politics in the Scottish government and parliament where you know parties have come together Oh, I want to just quickly move on because I know we've only got a little bit left um, just to move on and talk about, um, yeah, how we get there. So I think you've talked a lot about the kind of grassroots movement and con- and continuing that. And particularly if it ends up being this year or, you know, the start of next year, we have to think about how we do that in a COVID society. And, you know, as we kind of transition out of that, not being able to meet up and talk in person and kind of doing that. Is there any big yeah, campaign tactics or approaches that you would love women for independence or, you know, just general individuals who want to get involved with this conversation to use? Is there anything that you've found to be particularly persuasive for those those maybe people or, or the soft nose? Yeah, I mean, and, and I can't envisage doing it under COVID. So I don't know, because everything I know that works is having the conversations, right. talking, listening. Yeah listening to what people are scared of and then showing them the evidence that says, well, this is the route out of, or this is the way to prevent what you're scared of, or this is the way, this is a better way to get to where you want to be. Mm-hmm. And when we were doing these kind of open forum things around 2014, as I said, I was an independent academic then, we mm-hmm. took the temperature of the room yeah. at the start. And it was usually, you know, 20% no, 20% yes. And in the middle, we don't know. Having listened to the evidence, particularly the evidence, the independent evidence from the academics who weren't there to persuade, they were just there, you know, people said, well, what What happens under the EU? What happens under defence? We said, well, the evidence indicates that this would happen. Almost all of them went over to yes. Yeah. And some of the no's came to I'm not sure. Yeah. Nobody went the other way. Yeah. So that is what that indicates to me that we need to get the information out there. We need to have the conversations. So one of the things I would say to everybody who's listening to this, if you are a woman, join Women for Independence. Yeah. And if you're not a woman, join your local yes group, because yeah. it, that groups those local stakeholder grassroots organizations that will have the conversations. Yeah. 
and also that people listen to people like themselves. So, you know, I don't think we have a problem with younger people who are very pro-independence, probably Mm -hmm. more pro-independence than they were last time and a lot more than can vote, which is great. I think the key one is older people and older women. So we need to, if you are an older person or particularly an older woman who is pro-independence, again, join a local organisation and find ways of talking to people like you. Exactly, exactly. Um, And and having conversations. And when I say talking to, I mean listening as well. That's the important thing. Don't do what politicians do, which is just harangue you and shout at each other over the tops of heads. Sit down, have conversations and listen. And that's the way to persuade people. I think that was genuinely one of the things that really inspired me by the last um, independence referendum was that I genuinely did feel like people were having serious and thoughtful conversations about what they were going to vote, even more so than the EU referendum. Although I was living in Namsam at the time, so I might be kind of skewed in terms of my conversations I was having. But even just with, you know, friends and family and that kind of thing, we were genuinely sitting down and sitting and talking about what it meant. And I think, particularly talking about that community thing, I think it's so important for some people to talk to people who are from their town, from their village, from their city, that kind of thing, and talk about the same thing. What does this mean for, you know, the local industry? What does this mean for this? What does it mean for the university, et cetera, et cetera? I think that it's so powerful and, and and not used as much as we think it would be like having those conversations with people who are like you and have the same interests is so important right um, it is important yeah and it is you know in a, in an era of fake news and all yeah. sorts of stuff when there's all sorts of stuff around people aren't trusting mainstream media they're not trusting social media for very good reason yeah. as we've seen but they will trust a conversation with someone that they know and I ran for election in the 2017 general election. So I did hustings. Mm-hmm. And the people who turn up for hustings are party political. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to find out what's going on. That's not the general population. Whereas yeah. the people who were turning up a couple of years earlier around independence was much more the general population. Yeah. And as a social policy academic who wants to see civic society politically engaged, I don't think we can ever put that genie back in the bottle. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And that's amazing. Even the fact that we're having the conversations yeah, completely. everywhere um, is absolutely amazing. And if it leads to independence, I think we'd have to continue having those conversations because you have to build a nation. Yes. And what Brexit has shown us is what happens when you don't take the no voters with you. Yes, completely. Huge social and political divide. You've still got families not talking to each other. Yeah, we can't do that with Scottish no. independence. Going forward, we have to take the no voters with us. Yes, they have to feel. If we win on whenever it is the next day, people should not feel I've lost my country. No, they should feel right. Well, this might be a challenge, which it will be, but they should also feel like you know those of us who wanted it to happen will take them with us. Yes, exactly, exactly. I think that's a great, great note to think finish on. Um, yeah. That's wonderful. No, thank you so much, Kristen. That was so interesting, and it's given me, yeah, so much to think about. And what I'll do is I'll I'll make sure to tag the woman for independence in the post and show people how they can get involved because I know you can get involved with your local group. But thank you so much for taking the time to chat. And yeah, if anyone listening has any thoughts, anyone to continue the discussion, you can always check out the Twitter and Facebook of the podcast. You know where it is, and obviously you can email on feministfeaturespodcast at gmail Thank you so much. Thanks for asking me.